um, absolute uh, flood that has come from the well-meaning Pentecostal movement through the charismatic movement into that postmodern world that has created this kind of use the force mentality uh, of believers so that any weird thought that comes into their head becomes the word of God and his directions to them has created a chaos uh, for most Christians in this culture. So the regaining of that worldview and particularly to get it inculcated into our children is very important. So we need to keep in mind that that uh, worldview comes from a, a, a complete internalization of the Word of God. Uh, so that if the Spirit of God does speak to you, you know His language. Uh, and so the internalization of the text is very important for the Scripture is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Then we must have a biblical mindset. That biblical mindset is to humbly walk with our God according to His commandments and His guidance. Uh, so that we can uh, be servants of His. And that leads us to what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and that was the idea of lordship. We've looked at lordship as a relationship between an authority, in this case Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth except the authority of the Father Himself, the only one not under His, uh, his authority, um, and those subject of that, which is us. Now, all human beings are subject to lordship because God created us, but we have been redeemed. So not only is he creator, he's redeemer, and therefore he can tell us what to do, and he can judge us in that context. So that relationship of lordship is critical. That is our confession. We don't confess that Jesus is savior. He is our savior. We confess, curios, Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that means he can tell me what to do and I'm to obey him. And of course, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Many in the last day will, will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So the issue is not whether you know him, the issue is whether he knows you, right? And he knows you in the context of lordship. So, Lordship is the awareness of our redemption that acknowledges uh, that by believing in the resurrection, confessing Jesus is Lord. That requires a commitment to struggle in obedience in this life, anticipating full obedience to his commands and authority in the kingdom to come. It understands that, this is a, uh, that he is the judge of the living and the dead and will reward and punish us based on our obedience. Um, and uh, this is a struggle. It is a struggle that is uh, difficult because we live in these unredeemed bodies. So the flesh gives us trouble. There is difficulty because we have a culture and a worldview that's pushing us to indulge that flesh. And behind that is the spiritual forces of Satan himself who energizes that by sowing discord among the brethren and by perverting the word of God so that it matches. He always makes it look like you're serving God when you're in fact in disobedience. And that's been his, his lie from the beginning. So uh, we looked at first, uh, the first chapter of Jude and Second Peter where the scripture talks about those who will enter into the community and will begin to teach false doctrine. 
And the false doctrine that they will teach is a way of perverting the text. And one of those things is to pull us away from lordship and towards grace. Let that settle in. Away from lordship and then towards grace. As if lordship and grace were pole opposites. And that is what you hear in the church and what you hear in this highly evangelistic world. And so what I want to do, I've been talking about lordship for two weeks, pretty rough stuff. And so I want to talk about grace today so that we get an understanding of grace. Because the way we've been talking, if you separate grace and lordship, lordship can sound like it's implying a works-based salvation. And that flies in the face of our common idea of salvation by grace. So I want to talk about the biblical notion of grace, and I want to put it into proper relationship with lordship. Now, there are ideas of grace out there. Uh, I hear them every year about this time. Students come to me and ask about grace. And I always tell them she didn't take this class. What they mean is, I want you to compensate for my complete lack of doing anything that I was supposed to do. We actually get people that want incompletes, and what they really need is never starts, because they just, they just didn't do things. So we have turned grace into the idea of lenience. In, in Jude and in Second Peter, that's specifically what is said. These false teachers will turn the grace of God into licentiousness, and will deny the Lord who bought them. Or, as one verse says, deny lordship. It's translate authority, but it means lordship. In other words, if you take grace away from lordship, you end up denying the Lord. And we'll see that in this context. But first, what exactly is grace? Now, when I was uh, growing up and trying to figure this out, I would listen to people talk about grace. And one of the clever things that I heard was, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. You may have heard that one. That, that's cute. Uh, my Catholic friends almost, almost sounded like grace was a thing that it was infused into a person uh, through the sacraments. Uh, that's not Catholic teaching, uh, but it's somewhat believed by Catholics in the same way that we all have a tendency to overstate something uh, theological because we don't know the actual uh, background of it. So, the English word grace is not found very frequently in the Older Testament. It's found only 11 times in, for example, the New American Standard Bible. Uh, related forms, such as being gracious, m- make it show up more often. The Hebrew word behind this is chen, and the word is usually translated in, uh, in the Older Testament as favor. And that's a good translation. Because we get favor better than we get grace. We have given grace this kind of Automatic, and I talked about this last week, how would you like, parents, to have your child say, I don't care what you tell me, I'm going to do what I want anyway, and you have to forgive me because you're my parent. That kid would be in a lot of trouble. Okay? 
and God's kids are in a lot of trouble. When they take that attitude with him, just read the history of Israel. Okay? Uh, so a lot of what we're doing is missing this. So the word means favor. This is the best understanding of the word. It means to be favored. Uh, I used to say God's chosen us, but I'm his favorite. That, that's arrogant. <laughs> Uh, but the idea is, I was trying to push the idea of the word. You all know when somebody's being favored. What happens when someone's being favored? The person who is favoring them is cutting them a little slack. Now, they're not cutting them a little slack so they can get by with things. That's what it feels like. They're cutting them a little slack in hopes that they will turn around and do what's right. And so it's important to understand this word uh, as it is. It's the idea that when you're in need and you are approaching someone to request something, the idea of favor or acceptance with that person is beneficial. So think about you're going because you have to talk to somebody about a problem you have. And you know whenever that person sees you, they get this disgusted look on their face. Oh, you again. Okay? You don't feel favor. But if you know that you need something and this person can help you, and when you walk in the door, they go, Hi, how you doing? You know you have acceptance with them. You know they are favoring you. And therefore, they are likely to be a help to you. That's what this word means. This word means that when we come to God... He looks upon us with favor and with a readiness to accept us and fix the problem. Not let the problem continue. The idea that the problem continues is not grace. You need to think about that because we are being taught that we can do whatever we want and grace may abound. Paul says that specifically. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Okay? Because that favor will change if you take that attitude. And we're going to see that grace and attitude are connected notions in the scripture. So, in the Greek New Testament, the word behind this term grace is charis. Uh, the word charismatic, grace gifts. Uh, it means grace or favor in the sense that one has a feeling of well-being. You ever been anxious and nervous? You have to see somebody and you don't know what they think of you. And you come in and you're kind of anxious and you're kind of nervous and you're kind of worried. And they say to you, just want you to know you're one of my favorite people. How do you feel? Oh, I feel pretty good. You know, that's that sense of well-being. That's what the Greek word means. The Hebrew word means this person is favoring you and accepting you. And the Greek word attached to it is the word that has this sense that I feel okay because I've been accepted. Now, I don't feel okay because I can do anything I want. I feel okay because this person cares about me and favors me. Okay? That's 
That's what this word is. When given favor, we respond internally with a sense of being okay and having acceptance with the one who has given us grace and favor. So, now I want to talk about grace in biblical context so that you can understand it. We begin with its first use, which is found in Genesis chapter 6. It's a verse you all know. In fact, it may be a verse that you have sung from time to time. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 begins, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created, whom I have created from the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry I have made them. Got the context? Now the word. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God knows the nature of man. We will run amok. We are what we are. We, we bear the transgression of Adam. We bear that process. We, we, we continue to do this. And God knows that's the case. And so with the desire to completely wipe that from the earth, God favors one man. Noah was a man like us. He was a man who had that same nature. But God favored him, and in favoring him, developed a relationship with him. And I want you to know what that relationship ends up looking like. I don't want you to think that that relationship started this way. It didn't. This is where the relationship goes, the next verse. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. It is the favor of God that gives you the faith to trust what God is saying so that you can now walk in obedience to God. It says he was righteous. We'll talk about that. It says he was blameless. That means he wasn't violating God's commandments. Now we know Noah wasn't perfect, but we know the direction of his walk, and that was a result of him being favored enough to trust God and to walk in his ways. And that becomes the essence of what this word means. We see it very strongly in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. Now this is one in this congregation you guys know real well and you've sung this one too. Numbers chapter 6 verse 22. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So you shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. Now, I want you to catch this. We sing it all the time. 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord uh, make His face shine upon you. What does that mean? A person's face shines when they are smiling on you. You'll see somebody say, you see a little kid do something? And you watch the people around them and they see them and they get that look. Their face just shines. That's favor because what happens is, and he'll be gracious unto you. If that little kid who's made you smile, right, turns to you and says, could you help me find something? You're going to do it, you know. If that kid's a little brat, little entitlement brat, you know, an American, and starts uh, demanding that you help them, you're a little less, you favor them less, right? Go away, kid, you bother me, right? So that's what he said. And he says, may he lift up his face upon you. When he looks upon you, he gives you peace. The word peace, shalom, is a word that means there's nothing against you. I have nothing against you. I am for you. If God be for us, who can be against us, right? So here's what happens. God looks upon us. He sees us. He favors us. And he gives us peace. That's what this word is talking about. Now, how does this work? Well, uh, it's connected to righteousness, but you have to get the emphasis on the wrong, on the right syllable, because if you get it on the wrong one, it'll sound funny. Okay, so I want you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter one. In the Newer Testament, Paul takes this ironic blessing, and he uses it several times in in his writings to say the same thing to us. What he does is he just shortens it down. So in Romans chapter one. Verse 7, he says, To those who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That becomes the statement of greeting that Paul gives. He gives the ironic blessing in a shortened form. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That becomes... In early Christianity, that becomes the greeting uh, that, that people give to each other. Uh, and in doing so, they are, they are acknowledging that we, the community of faith, are favored and at peace with one another and with God, which is our favored status. Now, how does this work? Well, it doesn't work by earning. Okay? Favor isn't earned. Favor is given. Right? We say, would you do me a favor? And the person says, what are you going to do with me? You're not so sure you want the favor, right? So the idea is that this is a relational component of the person being predisposed to help you. And that's what grace is. Acts chapter 15. Now, again, a passage that we're familiar with, many people are not. This is the struggle over whether or not the Gentiles should be circumcised and be required to do all the traditions of the fathers. 
And in the context of that, in verse 7, uh, Peter stands up and says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know how in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. He's talking about the house of Cornelius. And believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's talking about the Torah covenant. If the Torah covenant in its entirety has to be done in order to be saved, and that's what they're saying about these Gentiles. They have to be circumcised, they have to obey all the commandments, because then that's the only way they can be saved. Uh, he says, verse 11, But we believe that we are saved through the favor, or the grace, of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. So, it's established in the scriptures that our salvation is... Uh, initiated by the grace of God and not by our acts of righteousness. So, how does this work? Well, we, we have the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2 and I have to go quickly so I'm just going to remind you that because you know that verse. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. What's the that referred to? The faith. The faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. So the idea is that God favors us in giving us faith that we will confess Jesus as Lord and begin the process of trusting and walking in Him. That is the favor of God that comes to us. And that comes not because we have done something. It comes because God has smiled on us. And favored us. So, how does this look? Well, I want to do a quick, very quick, run through Romans. Uh, we're not going to do the Roman road, but we're going to run through Romans. And I want to run through it very quickly uh, in chapter 3, verse 21. Because Paul talks about grace throughout this process. You, will, you can go back and read all of Romans. I, I, these are not proof texts, but they are markers along the way for you to understand. Romans chapter 3. Uh, is about righteousness. Now, Paul's going to talk, let me just clarify this. Paul's going to talk in Romans about two kinds of righteousness. There's a righteousness of obedience and a righteousness of trust. They're both valid, they're both biblical, but they have to be done in a certain way. The faith righteousness, the trust righteousness, must come first and then the obedience righteousness connects to that. Obedience righteousness without faith righteousness establishes self-righteousness. And that will not gain the favor of God. Okay, So you want to keep that in mind as Paul's writing here. Romans 3.21 Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now what is Paul saying? Two righteousness, one in obedience based on the Torah, and there's another one that's testified 
to in the Torah and in the prophets. In other words, this is a biblical doctrine. It's not an extra doctrine that came up. The Torah itself teaches this. Okay, What does the Torah teach? What do the prophets teach? They teach a righteousness uh, that comes... It's a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes everybody here. Uh, uh, Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This being made righteous, this justification is a justification by faith. Whom God publicly made a propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because of the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. And He goes on and says, verse 17, Where then is boasting? See, if I've done something, I can boast. Well, I did this, and God gave me this. Okay? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Verse 28. For we maintain, listen to this, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay? Now, to that, almost everybody who talks about grace agrees. Apart from the works of the law, there is a grace, faith, given that makes us believe in the resurrection and confess Jesus as Lord, and that is the favor of God that has come to us. So there is a righteousness by faith. But I want you to look at verse uh, 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Oh, really? Yes. We don't say, get rid of the law, we have faith, because the righteousness of faith is taught in the law. So you establish the validity of the law when you believe that grace, salvation, is our righteousness. We'll talk about how that works. So, verse, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See the grace and peace? The favor comes to us so that we believe. We believe and now are at peace with God. The ironic the blessing that is testified in the law is now upon us. Grace and peace be unto you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is a problem. And the problem Paul talks about in chapter 10. Chapter 10 verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So what is the Jewish problem? The Jewish problem is this. Uh, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of faith, right? 
For Christ is the purpose, that's what that should say there, it doesn't say in, it's not removing the law, it's the purpose of the law. Christ is the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Moses writes about the man who practices the righteousness based on the law. That's the other righteousness. He shall live by that righteousness. That, but the righteousness based on faith speaks this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. Who will ascend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now Paul is quoting Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy teaches the righteousness of faith. Get it? We don't reject the Torah. We establish the Torah. But you've got to use it right. It's not to remove the commandments of God. It's to remove the sin and the condemnation so that we can struggle towards obedience. And the church has screwed that one up big time. So, it is not an issue of law versus grace. It's a issue of works versus grace. Back to Romans 4. Romans 4, uh, 1 to 16. He talks about Abraham. And he says, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. So in verse 9 he says, Is this blessing then based on the circumcised or the uncircumcised? Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How was it credited? When he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of those who believe without being circumcised. Now, what's his point? His point is this, that this was done by God's favor not by his obedience. It wasn't Abraham's obedience. It was his belief. So look at verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now remember, we established the law. And in Romans 6, Paul says that when there is great sin, and the law made clear that we have great sin, there is great grace. So his argument then is, so then maybe we should sin that grace may abound. I'm going to be the biggest sinner I can be so that I will receive the greatest favor of God. This is not a verse to individuals. It's a verse to the group. And Paul says, don't do that. If you stay a slave of sin, you don't belong to God. That's the whole next chapter. That's the chapter nobody reads. They just read to that point, and then they let it go. To quote a song. Okay? And boy, do they let it go. If you've heard the song and the words to that song, it's about letting your inner person run amok. Our culture wants us to indulge the flesh. No rules. No commandments. 
it's all grace. Not a biblical doctrine. So, obedience to the commandments can't come from someone who doesn't trust God. The righteousness of faith must begin the process and the righteousness of obedience comes out of an attitude of gratitude for the grace that has been shown. And that's really what the scriptures are talking about. So now to Ephesians 2. Our verse that I quoted, I want to finish quoting the verse because we tend to leave that verse only half quoted. Verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So, God's grace has come to us that we might be saved by faith, favored by God, so that we could begin to do good works which God has prepared for us to do. And that's the commandments. Not the commandments to be saved. You can't be saved by doing the commandments. You create self-righteousness. And you know this, but I want to say it because I say it a lot. Baptists, you know, we say, well, we're a little worried if we start obeying the commandments that people will think that we're trying to earn our salvation. So let me disabuse you of that real quick. If you or I tomorrow began to obey the commandments 800 times better than we do now, no one who knows us would think we're in danger of earning our salvation. So that's just a game. So, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, that should be our lifestyle. So, how does this work? Well, James tells us in chapter 2 of James. James 2, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I always love it. If in, the, in the New Testament, if you ever listen to Jesus, Paul, or Jacob, James, talking about the commandments, they never talk about the first ones. They never talk about, you shall have no other God. You won't make an idol. You won't bear his name in vain. You'll keep his Sabbath. They never talk about those. They always go with the second slate. Because it's really easy to play games with the first and ignore the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The way we treat other people is a big issue. Because if you're identified with God and you treat people badly, God gets the rap. So if you're holy and not good, 
God gets the blame. And if you're good and not holy, you get the credit. So you are holy unto God. And then you do your good works. Men see your light and glorify your Father in heaven. Why? Because they know you're not doing that because that's you. You're doing that because you believe God. And that's what he's talking about. So James says this. If you are fulfilling this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and convinced by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Because the one who said, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. Uh, Now, if you uh, don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, you're still a transgressor of the law. We don't get to pick and choose. Right? So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty, how can this be called the law of liberty? Because you have been released from sin to be a servant of God, and now this obedience is your freedom. You're free from the law of sin and death, which is sin, not the law of God, which is good and spiritual. Those verses have been completely abused in Romans 7. So he goes on and he says this. If I can find it. But prove yourself, verse 22, prove yourself doers of the word. No, this is not it. It's chapter 2, sorry. Uh, Verse 14. What is it, brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can faith save him? Most evangelicals would say yes. The Bible says no. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by its being by itself. Someone may say, well, I have faith and, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Notice, it's not works without faith. Works without faith is self-righteousness. Faith without works is dead. Faith that comes from the grace of God that then out of gratitude causes us to go forward in obedience is what God is asking for. So how is this done? How do I get more grace so that I can be more obedient? That's the question. Well, there's a very simple answer and James tells us in chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 6. And it's connected to our mindset. What will bring the grace and favor of God into your life? What is it that we do that makes God smile at us and then be gracious to us? If it's not works, if it's not obedience, what is it? And it's all through the scriptures. And we don't hear it preached. Because it goes against the American cultural mindset. But it's the biblical mindset. So, James chapter 4, verse 6. He gives greater grace. Therefore it says, 
God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter quotes the same thing in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Psalm 138 says the same thing. Proverbs 3.34 says the same thing. This is a biblical concept. God dwells with those who don't think much of themselves. Who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. God, I am without strength. I am without hope in the world. Unless you favor me, I have nothing. And God says, I will give that to you. God, you'll be happy to have me. In fact, you'll be lucky to have me. I'm an American. God resists the proud. You know what? I found this a great way to live. When somebody comes to you and they are humble, you give them grace. When they come to you with entitlement, you send them packing. I had a young man come into my office at the church one time and sat down and told me I needed to help him. And I said, I don't understand. He said, well, you should. Okay? Explain it to me. So he, he quoted to me, out of context, the story of the Good Samaritan. And said, you need to be the Good Samaritan. And not, you know, not that, those other two guys. And you need to take care of me. I said, well, you know what? I've read that story. And the guy was beat up and left in a ditch. And the Samaritan walked up on him and saw him in his need and took care of him. And I am fully prepared to help you if I ever see you in a ditch beat up. But you walked in here on your own power with your own arrogance and your own stuff. So get out of my office. God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. A few days later, this was during the time I was studying these verses, a young couple came in and they said, we're really sorry, we don't want to bother you, we have a problem. We have, we have money, we have access to it, we have everything we need, we just can't get over to Anaheim to the bank. We were in Westminster. They were clear on the other side. The bank was on the other side. We don't know what to do. Uh, could, you, could you help us maybe with, with bus money, a ticket, something? You know, uh, we'll call you from there. We'll prove. We just, we just don't know what to do. So I put them in my car and I drove them over to the bank. And I waited for them. And they got their money and they got their check. And they, we got them to the hotel and they, they paid their and did it. They humbled themselves. I have an obligation. I, it's not hard. It's not hard when somebody's humble. And so I'm, I'm, I don't know what to do here. But if you come in, hey, you got to help me. That person's not going to. That's the way God is. So you want more grace from God? You want to grow in grace and in knowledge? Humble yourselves and learn of him. Because his burden is light. His yoke is not heavy. Humility is the answer. And that's why Jude and Peter talk of these people who come among us, turn the grace of God into license to do anything they want and to sing amazing grace, mocking the very God that, that they follow. And that's why Peter follows his passage up with, in the last days, mockers will come. So where's his coming? They don't believe what he said. Because they now tell God what to do. Welcome.
to American Christianity. So grace is God's favor found in the Messiah and the gift of faith that brings us the righteousness of salvation. It is given to those who humbly seek the Lord. It cannot be earned by works and it cannot be the basis of pride. We can't boast. The one who receives such grace responds in praise and gratitude and the struggle towards obedience, earning a righteousness of obedience which will manifest a knowledge of God and will benefit other people. That righteousness will be accompanied, uh, an accompaniment to the gift of faith that came from God's favor. We'll struggle with obedience because uh, we, we're, we have flesh and we have this world. But the one who watches over us watches over us with favor and not condemnation. He wants his children to grow and mature. And we do that in his love and in his favor as we are humble. So the faith that we have is not a workless approach to life. The faith struggle in humble gratitude to God is something that demonstrates his wisdom and his glory. We don't do obedience to God for self. We do it in gratitude to God and in service of others. Grace, then, is not an open invitation to do our own thing. Grace is given to those who humble themselves and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Let's pray.